You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Cameron Harold. And Cameron is founder of the COO Alliance. Uh, he is an entrepreneur. We're going to find out a little bit more about his story. He's also an author, uh, has written several books, including The Double Double, if people have read that. That was an, an early one, which I loved. Uh, he's written Meeting Suck, The Miracle Morning, uh, if people know that book. Uh, quite a following there. I've got several friends who have followed The Miracle Morning for many years. Vivid Vision and Free PR, which we're going to find a little bit more about, but uh, all great books for folks on this podcast, folks that are looking to grow and scale service-based businesses. With that, Cameron, welcome to the program. Hey, Bruce. Thanks for having me. And just a, a quick minor edit on that, just I really want to be factual. Sure. I, co-authored, I co-authored The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, which was the um, Hal Elrod wrote the original Miracle Morning. And then he and I co-authored The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, which is a much more specific look at how entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial people should start their day and continue their day. Great. Thank you for clarifying that one because I, I hear the Miracle Morning tossed around a lot right. uh, and I know that uh, a lot of people have, have been using it. I guess the quick, what's the difference between the, I guess, how have you specifically made it for entrepreneurs? What are some of the takeaways on that one? Entrepreneurs are really that 3% that are, are out there taking chances, running their own business, mm-hmm. feeling the pressure of you know their employees, their family, society, debt. Um, and it, <laughs> yeah. it, it's a pretty special something for that individual to be able to start their day in the right way versus in the busy work, right? Yeah. You know, most employees will wake up and they'll they'll do their day and they'll they'll go to the office and they'll start when they get to their desk. Yeah. Most entrepreneurs haven't stopped working through the night. They're taking notes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, they're, they're probably processing and they're subconscious as they sleep. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's just, it's written for them. So we include all the morning savers, but then I also get into hiring a second in command, leveraging the vivid vision and really all the productivity tools for the rest of the day. Awesome. So, so let's go back and, and give us a sense of your background. I mean, how you've really developed quite a network of business leaders, of, you know, executives, both CEOs, COOs, you know, other leaders inside businesses that are looking to grow and scale. How did you get into this position? What was, what was your background that got you here? So I was, I was groomed as an entrepreneur at a very young age. My father ran his own business in Northern Ontario in Canada, and both my grandfathers also ran their own companies. And so I grew up in an entrepreneurial environment where that's all we knew. And my brother, sister, and I were all kind of groomed to become entrepreneurs. And that's what we all do today. All three of us own our own companies. Um, So when I was 20 years old, I actually had 12 full-time employees and I was running a, a house painting business. So I would go out in Sudbury, Ontario and knock on doors and put up signs and paint houses and did that for a few years, did around a half a million dollars in house painting back in the mid eighties, which was extraordinary amount of, of revenue for a young kid. Yeah. Made really good profit and then got involved with the, uh, the head office of a company called college pro painters, which is the world's largest residential house painting company. 
And I was on the senior management team of about 30 people. And every year we would go out and hire and recruit and train 800 franchisees. And then those 800 franchisees would go out and hire and train 8,000 painters. Wow. And between May 1st and August 31st, we'd paint $64 million in houses. And I was on the senior team coaching and leading 120 of those franchisees. Um, and even back in 1993, I had Kimball Musk, Elon's brother, was a franchisee of mine. <laughs> and also Peter Reeve, who built Solar City, was also another franchisee sure. of mine back in 1993. So I'd, I'd been coaching and managing businesses since the kind of mid 80s and yeah. then did the college pro thing uh, then got involved with a friend's business we started up a chain of auto body collision repair shops in canada it's known as boyd auto body in the u.s it's known as gerber auto collision we took that it's now the biggest collision repair chain in the world took it public back in 98 um, then i did a private currency company for a couple of years which we built and sold and then i joined my best friend and he was my best man at my wedding and he had a small business uh, here in vancouver had 14 employees and 12 franchises of a company called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Yeah. And I came on as his chief operating officer and stayed for six and a half years. And when I left six and a half years later, we had 3,100 employees and 330 franchises. We were operating in four countries, 46 states. Uh, we ranked as the number two company in Canada to work for. And then left there 12 years ago this month, and I started coaching uh, CEOs and their executive teams globally. Yeah. And I've been doing that now for 12 years. Yeah. So you have just a little bit of experience. <laughs> You've been in this in this for a while. Well, yeah, it's interesting even when you talk about, you know, your your audience, everyone listening is really in the service industry space predominantly. And that's really where I cut my teeth. And I think it was a huge skill for me to have started in the service space because you really truly have to listen to your customer. Yeah. And I think so many businesses forget that that, you know, the, I disagree that the customer is always right. You know, there's also an exception to every rule. But you have to listen to your customer to understand your product, to understand your pricing, to understand your your market, and to truly understand how to please them. And if you're listening to your customer, it all works. And I think so many businesses that are, are not in that service space really miss the point. Yeah, well, just because it's it's easy to kind of sit in your workshop and build a product, you know, with this kind of abstract idea of who's going to buy it or who's going to use it and then try to go to market and have problems. I mean, is that, that's the, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the difference. Exactly. I'll give you a really concrete example of, yeah. of listening to the customers and what it does. When you listen to your customers, you'll actually understand how high you can start raising your prices. So one of the very early things I learned about 1-800-GOT-JUNK when I was the COO and within the first couple of weeks was we just weren't charging enough. Yeah. Our franchisees were not going to make enough money. Our employees weren't making enough money. We weren't making enough money. And the customer loved us. The customer was really, really into what we were doing. And I'm like, wait a second. They're going to pay a lot more than we're charging right now. We mm -hmm. could be the FedEx of junk removal. We could be the Starbucks of junk removal. So we raised our prices 50% across the board. And then all of a sudden we were making money, our franchisees made money, our employees made money, the customers were still happy, and we could increase our brand and our marketing and our image and our service, so we blew everybody away. And then all of a sudden our competitors started to raise their prices too. Yeah, yeah. But that was listening to the customer. Yeah, and how, I guess, when, when we say listening to the customer, I mean, what are the things we're listening for? Is this is this conversations? Is this data? Is this uh, website log reports? I mean, how when you kind of think about listening to the customer, what gets included in that activity? Yeah, back in those days, it was actually listening to them, standing, <laughs> on, standing on job sites and talking to them and hearing them going, you guys are amazing. You guys totally showed up. I love how friendly your guys are. So you hear all the things that they started to say and realize, wow, they're saying we have friendly uniform drivers. 
they're saying we showed up on time and we had upfront rates. So those became like our quality focus areas became on-time service, upfront rates, clean, shiny trucks, friendly, uniform drivers. Yeah. When a customer says to you, when six different customers over the course of two weeks say, wow, you guys have really clean, shiny trucks, you don't have to think about how to describe it. Just call it clean, shiny trucks. Yeah. And when they say, you know, God, I would use you guys over and over again, you realize, okay, our prices is, is, you know, reasonably priced. But when all of a sudden we started hearing, loved your service, love your guys, you guys are amazing, a little bit more than I thought you were going to be, yeah. that started to become very apparent when I was at about the six-year mark in the company, was I think a lot of our franchisees got out of control and started charging too much. So by listening, we pulled it back a little bit. Yeah. And then we, then we knew we'd get the repeat business, the recurring business. How like I see a lot of companies that I think struggle with this process or they they struggle with figuring out what their kind of differentiating factors are and they I think they 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 try to do everything or they try to they they try to meet all of the customer needs. I guess how do you how do you help a company or how how do you suggest a company kind of focus on a, a limited set or uh, talk to me about that. I mean, do you see companies that have that try to do too many things for their customers? Yeah, I think in the end of the day, you're really not netting it down to what matters, right? So yeah. if you think about, you know, I'll give a great example on service with, with Starbucks. Around 10 years ago, 2008, 2009, Howard Schultz came back in as CEO. And one of the things he became very manic about was starting to ask the customer their name again. They stopped doing that. Now, what they really missed the point on on Starbucks was actually giving a shit about your name. <laughs> right? So yes. what they, because they wrote your name down on the cup, but they didn't build any human connection with you. And you go to other coffee shops and because their hiring is so on point and because they've hired people who actually care and will build a connection, when that barista asks you for your name, they don't even need to write it down, but they talk to you while they're making your drink. Yeah. They mentioned your name a couple of times yeah. and that's that was the original point at Starbucks from asking your name was he was trying to emulate the feeling of, of Italy where you were going to the coffee shop. and It's like, Joe, yeah, Joe. the corner. Right. And that's yeah. what it was like in the early days at Starbucks. I remember because I actually used to date Howard Schultz's kid's nanny. When I was <laughs> 93. True story. I dated her. We'd have to, I'd have to show up on property, wave security cameras. Um, 93, I would go into a Starbucks and it, it just felt different, right? The food was more custom. It was less processed. The, the yeah. connection was more with the barista. So I think by doing too much, yeah, they tried the, most brands try to do too much. They, they forget the basics. Yeah. Yeah. And, and those things that really, really differentiate them or that define why their particular customer hires them or likes them so much, you know, and really doubling down on those things. Cause I think that's, you know, spreading yourself too thin is always a risk. Yeah. There's the company. You know, you mentioned something in there, which I'd be curious to, to dig into a little bit was the hiring process. Uh, you know, certainly I think one of the big challenges with service-based businesses is that it does become such uh, the, the hiring becomes such a factor. Who works in the company is such a factor. And, you know, not only kind of getting skill, capability, you know, alignment, but the cultural alignment. I mean, how, I guess, how have you found uh, successful service-based businesses? How do they approach the, the hiring process or, or particularly around the cultural side of that hiring process? Yeah, most companies make all the excuses in the world of why it's tough and they start to believe their own bullshit. So mm, what yeah. you have to do is you have to decide that you're going to be different. You have to decide that you're going to kind of cover off Maslow's hierarchy of needs and pay a little bit more, give more vacation time, create a better work environment, only hire A players, fire the C players, get rid of the cultural cancers and the toxic people. So one of the things that we did as an example at 1-800-GOT-JUNK was we described what our employees would look like, act like, and feel like. Mm -hmm. So that when they walked in the door, we could see them. 
And we wanted fraternity boys, right? We wanted rugby players and football players and soccer players. We weren't looking for garbage men. We didn't yeah. have anyone. None of our employees smoked. Like the guys that were out in the trucks were athletes and yeah. gregarious and friendly. And we threw a, you know, a branded golf shirt on them. And all of a sudden they stood, stood out, right, as these friendly uniform drivers. But we hired friendly people. You know, we didn't have to train them to be friendly. We only interviewed them if they were friendly. Um, and I think most people in the service industry forget that. They think they're hiring a painter or a yeah. mechanic or an HVAC person. No, not at all. You're hiring a really, really friendly person who happens to be a great electrician. Yeah. So you have, you have to think about the behavioral traits first. Um, I get every job posting that I'll write the, the, the kind of tactical side of the job posting first. Like I'll write about the electrician we're hiring for and I make it very specific about all the things they need to have. And then I get a copywriter a marketer to take a look at that job posting and rewrite it so that it pops off the page and reads more like a sales ad. Mm. That way I'll stand out from all the rest of the electrician's job postings. I'll make sure that I pay about kind of the 80th percentile of the bell curve. So they could get a little bit more somewhere else, but we'll pay more than most people will pay. And I'll put that compensation right in the actual job posting. Oh, also, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I also give five weeks paid vacation to every employee and that costs you nothing more. Right. It's the same amount of money, but then no one quits. Everyone yeah. wants to for you. Your retention goes up. Your training cost goes down. Your sick days go down. You make it a use it or lose it policy. So they have to take those days off during the, period, the 12 months, December 31st, any days they haven't taken, they lose it. But every month you're pushing them to take more vacation time. So all of a sudden your yeah. employees recharged and are happy and then you're, then it's easy to recruit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. Having run technology services for many years, that was always, you know, th those kind of benefits. I mean, you know, people want money, but people want, you know, a good quality of life. And if you can start providing some of those other benefits, it's incredible how it, it helps you really kind of hire at the top of your, the market or, or the higher quality of, in, in terms of the market that you're going after. Well, like North Americans suck. Like if, you, <laughs> like if, if they would actually get their head out their ass and compare themselves against the rest of the world yeah. they realize that the rest of the world is five or six weeks paid vacation yeah like this whole thought of like two i would never let my child go and work at a place for two weeks vacation i'd be like fuck that that place yeah. sucks. yeah so yeah. you know italy they take off the entire month of april everybody yeah they just shut down so i think we have to start looking at and then but then what will happen is oh it's really hard to find good people no it's really easy to find good people it's easy to find great people, but they won't work for an average company. Yeah. So if you turn your company into above average, you'll find better people. All of a sudden, you'll have happier customers, happier employees, more profit. Shit, now you can actually pay even a little bit more. If everyone listening would go and check out a company called Redirect Health, Redirect Health allows you to give free health care to every employee for around $105 a month. Wow. So that's, yeah, so think about now for $1,100 a year, you can give free health care to every single one of your employees. That becomes an unfair recruiting advantage. But instead of doing that, most people sit around going, oh, it's really hard to find good people. Yeah. You know, how, how are the bears doing? Fucks. Like, stop watching. <laughs> <laughs> stop watching. I, love, I love it. Yeah, I, I, I can just imagine being coached by you. <laughs> I, no, I, do, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. I love how you break it down. I'm curious about that. I mean, I, I think, I, uh, you know, yes, I agree. I think it's hard to find here's, good people. Here's, and here's the thing. Like, people will go back and, wow, you guys were really an overnight success. Bullshit. Like, it took a long yeah. time to get to the night before we became the overnight success. And by the way, three times, right? Like yeah. you don't build the world's largest collision repair chain, the world's largest house painting company, the world's largest junk removal company by accident. Yeah. That took an awful lot of focus, faith and effort and yeah. a lot of kind of people really aligned and driving the flywheel. Even even reading business books, like so many people, oh, I'll go out and read the Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, but then they won't put any of the systems in place. 
save your time. Don't read the book. Yeah. Like, if you're not going to do it, double, double, right. Do you know, um, do you know a company out of, uh, New Jersey area called gold metal? Do you know Mike Aguilera? No, I don't tell me about it. I used to coach them. They were in the electrical, um, HVAC space. Oh, sure. yeah. Hundreds of vehicles on the road when they finally sold the company. Yeah. These guys executed like monomaniacs. That's what makes the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's about discipline. I mean, I guess how, I mean, is, is this something that you see either a company has it or doesn't, or is it something a company can develop this, this kind of real executional discipline? It's part of your DNA and it has to become part of your core values, right? Yeah. So, so you have to, and this is where Jim Collins in the book, Good to Great talked about getting the right people off the, or on the bus, the wrong people off the bus and everybody in the right seats. Yeah. Most companies won't fire the toxic underperforming C players. So if you have those toxic underperforming C players walking around your business, like the guys who smoke and just sit and watch the sports all weekend, yeah. they're not driven. They're not focused. They're not pushing hard. They're not self-learners. Yeah. But if you hire people that come in on, on Monday morning and go, dude, I watched four TED Talks on the weekend and I was doing this charity thing and I was like reading this book on such and such, your business will explode and those people are out there. But yeah. you, have to, you have to one by one hire those right people and then one by one align those right people. You know, I talk about this concept of the vivid vision and showing people what your company looks like, acts like and feels like in three years. So they're excited about why they're a part of it and what they're building. They're not just part of the job. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about vivid vision, because I think that's a really interesting it's interesting book, interesting concept. And actually, I was looking online and you're I think you have your vivid vision for COO Alliance on there. I'm pretty sure that's what I was looking at. And it's for 2019. But you wrote it in 2016. Correct. Do I have that right? I actually have a diary this August to write my. 2022 vivid vision for the CO Alliance. It's already in my calendar to be working on it this August. So, t- so tell us about vivid vision and tell us about the process. And then I'd be curious to talk about CO Alliance in terms of how that vision has impacted the process and the development of growth of that, that part of your business. Sure. So the idea of the vivid vision is that um, I got this idea from an Olympic coach. So Olympic athletes, high performance athletes will actually visualize themselves performing their event. Mm. So they will picture themselves, roll themselves through the event hundreds of times. You know, a high jumper will close their eyes and picture themselves running up, going up over the bar multiple times so that when they're doing it, it's kind of happening completely on instinct. In the business world, more often than not, the entrepreneur has an idea of what they want their company to look like, but they haven't explained it to anybody else. Mm. So imagine if you kind of leaned out into the future. Imagine if you hopped into a time machine and you went out three years from today to December 31st, three years from now, and you could describe what your company looked like, act like, and felt like. And it becomes a four-page description, four or five-page written description. You describe marketing, you describe IT, you describe operations, describe sales, describe your leadership team. You talk about what your customers are saying about you, what the market is responding to. You talk about your pricing, talk about your employee engagement, you talk about your suppliers. You literally describe every aspect of your business as if it's already come true without, yeah. worrying, about, without worrying about how you make it come true. And then the idea is you get a, a, a writer to help you polish that up so it's really professional and feels good and, and add some graphic design elements to it. And then you give a copy of that to everyone. So when everyone can read what the future of your business feels like and acts like, they want to be a part of it and they want to be a part of helping you build it. Uh, no, and I love the idea that you write it in sort of past tense, like you, you're writing in as this this has happened. It's not, yes. it's not yeah, I hope these things happen or this will happen in the future. This is, you're in the future looking back. Yeah, we actually write it in present tense, it's called. So we actually say like, Got it. I'm in my office and it looks like this. My employees are saying this. 
my customers are saying this. Like you write it as if you're standing there, literally as if you hopped into the DeLorean yeah. with Michael J. Fox <laughs> and you traveled out into the future and went, shit, this fucking office is cool. My trucks look amazing. And that's really where the power of this comes and where it gets exciting is when you can harness that energy. Because the reality is most people are not going to get that excited about what your business looks like today. Yeah, yeah. But if you, if you go out too far, if you go five or ten years, it's too far out there. But three years out is far enough to provide some good tension and excitement, and they can actually work towards something. Yeah, and I like that. I, I I'm a big believer in a in a three kind of a three year plan. We do twelve quarters, thirty six months, where we actually just lay out what's happening quarter by quarter. Because I think it is it's far enough that you have to do some planning, but it's not so far that it becomes too abstract. So I like the three year time period. And how does the cycle work? So now, for example, like the CEO Alliance, you're you're coming up on, you know, the, I think it's written as a, it's the end of 2019. So we're a couple of months away from that. Do you keep updating it or you write every three years, you write a new three year? How do you, how do you handle that? Every three years, you write another three year vivid vision. So yeah, so I haven't touched it other than rereading it, sending it to customers, sending it to suppliers. I send it to my accountants, like everyone around me sees my vivid vision and knows what it feels like. In fact, I'm just going to make a note right now again to send kind of been a couple quarters since I've sent it to my lawyer and my accountants and I got to send a copy of my vision out to all of them again. Yeah. So what I, yeah, what I try to do is have everyone see what my vision of my company looks like and then they conspire to help me make it come true. Got it. And I guess, how are you doing? Like, If you look at your 2019 Vivid Vision for COO Alliance, are you achieved all those things? Are you close to or is there anything you're going to miss? How, how do you deal with that kind of the delta? Well, so what's interesting is when I wrote it, we had not even started it yet. So I uh, had the, of the COO Alliance and I had no members. I had no brand. I had no logo. I had I had nothing, man. Yeah. Dream. You had a dream. <laughs> yeah. I was like, so now we've run 15, of six, 15 or 16 events. We're having our first event next week here in Vancouver, Canada. We, we have members from all over the world. We've had members from four different countries come. Uh, we launched the second in command podcast to tie into the marketing of it. Our pricing has remained high. It's, it's 20,000 a year for a member to join. And they pick five of the five events. They select three of the five to come to. So a lot of the stuff has kind of worked itself out. Mm-hmm. And then there's probably a couple of little things that haven't happened. You know, we have not launched our online community yet, but the online community is now becoming something that I know will happen over the next three years because we get too much demand for the program and not everybody's the right fit, right? So we have to take, yeah. Of the 100 people that apply, 10 are the right fit. Well, I need to send those 90 somewhere else because they should be a part of some community. Interesting. Yeah, so it's not that you want to just drop them. It's rather, how do I how do I channel them into the right solution for well, where they are and what they need? Again, that's listening to your customers, right? Yeah. If 90 people saying, I want to give you money. I want to be a part of something. And I go, shit, I should create a something and take that money from you and give you value. Yeah. Like, what do you need? Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to learn this stuff. Okay. How do you want to learn it? Would you like to learn online? If I just ask them questions and talk to them and create some kind of like a, it'll probably end up being a closed private Facebook group with a Dropbox of resources. And then once every two weeks, I'll come on and do a live Q and A in a video, but they will connect in that community. That will probably be the program. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I like the idea. You, it's really, you know, it's product or service design based on iterative conversations with customers or, or customer driven kind of uh, evolution iterations. Uh, so talking about creation of Vivid Vision. So you, you mentioned the first one you did was was you. You didn't have anyone yet. 
you know, now that you're going to do this again, is this, do, do you go off on, uh, you know, climb some mountain and, and sit there and ponder? Do you sit with your leadership team? Do you bring in outside people? Like how do you, how do you create a vision for a company that's in flight that has, you know, has a group around it already? Yeah, you do not involve your leadership team and management team in creating the vision of the future. It's really up to the entrepreneur and the CEO to know what the future looks like and feels like. Mm -hmm. And it's up to the team to figure out how to make that come true. So I'll give you the best example of that possible. Yeah. Let's say you're a homeowner and you want to do a renovation of your kitchen or you want to build a house. Do you want the do you want the electrician to design your cabinets? No. Do you want the plumber to decide how your home looks? Fuck no. Do you want the contractor to figure out how many bedrooms? And no, of course not. So you want to have the vision for what your house looks like. And you're going to give them sketches and drawings and pictures out of magazines and say, like, this is the kind of house I want you to build. This is what it needs to look like and feel like. They then, the contractor, will go away with an architect and create the blueprints or the plan to make your vision come true. He will sign off on your vision. You'll sign off on his plan. And then they give the plan to the employees. But when you get too many people involved, it becomes something thing and the homeowner is just not that excited about it because everybody else designed the home instead of them. Yeah. Yeah. The vivid vision vision of your company is the same thing. The reason we start companies is because we want to build something. The reason other people join companies as employees is they want to help someone build something. If they wanted to build their own vision, they would. Yeah. Now you might take some of their ideas because you know them and you go, yeah, that's a cool idea. It'll become part of it. But they really have to buy into the vision of what you're building. They have to see it. They have to feel it. Yeah. I like, I like that, that the, the founder or the CEO, the, the head, head leader of the company needs, it, it's their responsibility to really write that, to visualize it or to you know put it into terms that other people are going to be inspired by, clarified by, to create alignment around that. Uh, so t- and talk to me about the CEO Alliance. So uh, I know that you, um, you know, you, you've been kind of both sides of the, the leadership team there. Tell me about this relationship between the C- CEO, COO. Why, why is this important? Why have you focused on the COO side of it? Where, tell me about your kind of take on that and why you think that is so important to successful companies. Yeah, so I, I've played the second command role a few times in companies, and I've mm-hmm. also been a part of a lot of groups for entrepreneurs. You know, you think about YPO and EO and Vistage and the Genius Network and Maverick and GoBundance and War Room. And there's all these amazing places for entrepreneurs to go be a part of. And then there's trade associations for electricians and lawyers and marketers, et cetera. But there was never a place for the COO. So yeah. I, wanted to, I wanted to create a network and a mastermind for second in commands to go and learn from each other. So that's what the COO Alliance is. And then even my podcast, the second in command podcast, we only interview second in commands. We will never interview the CEO. I love it. I want the rest of the story. I want to hear, you know, the operational side. So what I learned from being a COO is that it's kind of like a husband and wife raising a family. If you ask, if you ask the husband, how did you raise your kids? He would have a very true story. He would tell you how they raised the family. It would be very accurate. If you ask the wife, how did you raise your kids? She would have a very true story. It would be completely different from what the husband would say. (laughs) And it would be absolutely true. So what I recognized was CEOs and COOs have very different views on how they're building the company. And both of them are very accurate. We've been teaching the wrong person how to grow the company. We should not teach the CEO how to grow the business. We should teach the CEO what needs to happen, but we should teach the COO and the management teams how to do it. Yeah. Right. So, 
CEOs need to know that there should be some structure around meetings, that meetings should have some formats. The reason I wrote Meetings Suck, but the COO and the managers and the employees should read the book Meetings Suck and should implement it. Yeah. Right. CEOs should know that we need to have leadership development programs. We need to grow our people. COOs need to know how to grow the people because the CEOs can't do all that stuff. They just need to be aware of it. The COO needs to know how to do it. Yeah. And if I'm a CEO and a company who's been reasonably successful, but is struggling with growth and I don't have a COO, how do I find one? What does that process look like? How do I, how do I find the right person to be my COO based on the company, based on who I am, based on leadership? What's that process? Great question. I actually cover a little bit of that in the book, The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs as well. So the first step in finding a COO is making sure that you actually have an executive assistant. So if, like you don't, if you don't have an executive assistant, you are one. <laughs> Love that so phrase. First things first is make sure you hire an EA, like a really solid executive assistant yeah. who can take a lot of the stuff off your plate that you suck at, that you don't love, that are minimum wage jobs. Like get all that stuff off your plate. Yeah. Leverage your time. Next part is make a list of all the key things that you would have a second in command do for you. What are the key projects, key areas that they would run? Because if you're a really strong finance-oriented CEO, you you don't want a finance-oriented COO. If you're a really strong marketing-focused CEO, you don't want a marketing-focused COO. So figure out all the stuff that you need to get off your plate that is really impactful, high-impact stuff that you suck at or don't like, and make sure that you hire a second-in-command who's really great at that and loves doing that. That's so, a really that's a good point. I just want to key in on that one because I think that's a mistake I see a lot of CEOs make. They, they bring in someone that looks sort of too much like themselves or is too similar to them rather than kind of complimenting. I mean, is that... Yeah, it's, it's, my brother is, I think, one of the best examples of this. He and his wife... They divide up what they call the pink jobs and blue jobs at their house. Okay. And some of the pink jobs are, are not really pink jobs. Some of the pink jobs, like his wife likes changing the oil in the car, so that's a pink job. And I like my it. brother my brother likes cutting the grass, so that's a blue job. But my brother likes washing dishes, so that's a blue job, but he doesn't like you know what I mean? Yeah. So dividing up your roles of the CEO, COO is first part. Second one is making sure that you recruit someone who on day one you trust so much. You would give them the keys to your company, passwords, bank account information on day one. If you don't have that level of trust, you haven't finished doing the interviewing and and reference checks. Got it. The next part of this is you put a title related to all the stuff the person's doing. So the second command doesn't have to be called a COO. It could be a general manager. It could be a director of operations. It could be a VP of operations. It could be a COO. By the way, that's the same for every title in your organization. You don't necessarily need a CFO. You might need a controller or an accountant or a bookkeeper or a VP of finance or director of finance or a CFO. So be careful with the title you give because people tend to want more money for it. And they tend to think their role has all of a sudden elevated. Yeah. No, and I think that's important. I think that, you know, getting the right COO in place, the right director of finance, you know, figuring out these roles. I think I've seen many companies stall or, you know, hit the ceiling because the CEO is either unwilling or unable to to figure out that design, figure out who do I need to surround myself by, both in terms of the nature of the company and what we do and the services that we provide and in terms of who I am and what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, what I like to do, what I don't like to do. And what is the company going to need? I mean, it just may be as a company gets to a, you know, a certain level, you, you need certain you know capabilities, certain functions that are going to have you know leaders within it. Well, and the reason that most companies stall in that spot is because they're actually trying to focus on what do I need next? 
instead of saying, okay, forget about next, what's my company look like in mm-hmm. three years? What's my vivid vision look like in three years? Yeah. What's my org chart look like in three years? What's my org chart look like in two years? What's my org chart look like 12 months from now? Yeah. Oh, okay. Now I see. I should maybe hire a couple of those people a little bit early, higher ahead of the curve. Yeah. But if we're just trying to kind of like, if we're always just making what we have a little bit bigger, it's hard to visualize what we need because we're not looking far enough out. Yeah. Yeah. I call it uh, swimming the underwater cavern. I mean, sometimes we need to make moves that are temporarily painful <laughs> because they're either going to disrupt the organization or I'm going to hire someone who's, you know, maybe is going to be overly capable for a period of time, but I'm hiring for my 12th month plan or my 24 month yeah. plan, getting those people in place now so that I can actually build to that level. And that's hard. It's hard to do without a strategy. It's hard to do without some forethought. I learned a, a great adage or adage around this years ago, and it was the two guys that are out in the forest and they have teams of people cutting down trees trees and they're competing against each other and the one guy's got this very efficient group and they're cutting down all the trees and they're really working hard and they're focused and they're aligned and they're driving really hard and he's got the entire team cutting down trees and the other leader climbs up the tallest tree and he looks around and he goes holy shit we're in the wrong forest <laughs> i love it <laughs> i think leadership is often about slowing down and looking around and figuring out where you're going and aligning your three resources, your people, time and money in that direction. But we often don't take pause for that. We often just wake up in the morning working really hard or checking our email and we don't think about the future. So I work everything backwards. I think about the future and I reverse engineer that. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Well, and I think the important thing is having, as you mentioned, kind of having that rhythm or that process of thinking strategically, you know, whether it's once a week or every other week or once a month, you've got some kind of rhythm process in place to to be able to do the strategic work on the business, not just, you know, execute, execute, execute. So, you know, I think that's great advice. Any other thoughts or, or things that you typically see for, for CEOs or, you know, leaders in service business in terms of where they get stuck and, and how they move through some of those? Well, one of them is, is I think they're always trying to figure it out. You know, so they're, I look at a lot of entrepreneurs. The reason my, my core purpose is helping entrepreneurs make their dreams happen. I just try to give them the cheat sheets and the shortcuts because business is not that difficult. We yeah. overcomplicate it. Yeah. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are like a fly trying to get out the window. You know, you see those flies and they're like <laughs> they're banging their head on the window and they're going to try harder and try harder. And sure enough, by the end of the day, they're lying dead on the windowsill. Yeah. And they've worked hard and they've tried hard, but they didn't actually slow down to kind of look where they're going. They didn't realize there's a door 10 feet away that's wide open. Yeah. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs are trying hard and working hard instead of doing my R&D stands for rip off and duplicate. Yeah, I like it. Right. So like as an example, I saw a great job ad the other day on or a marketing piece on Facebook. So I copied it, threw it into an email, sent it to myself and I said, R&D. So one of the things I'm doing today is I'm going to take that posting yeah. and I'm going to rip it off, change yeah. it up and I'm going to run with it. Instead yeah. of me trying to figure out a job posting from scratch, fucking take out burger, insert second in command. Right. Yeah. So. I love it. I love it. If people want to find out more about you, about the books, about COO Alliance, what's the best place to get that information? Yeah, all five of my books are available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. So if they look up any of my books or look up my name, they'll see them all. Uh, The book Meeting Suck is written so that every employee at every company will read that book because it actually teaches you not just how to run meetings, but also how to attend them, how to participate at them. It'll change companies. Awesome. And uh, the Second Command podcast is another great one where they get a lot of really great operational ideas. So the Second Command podcast. And then the COO Alliance, as long as you're doing at least 8 million in revenue, the COO Alliance is a great place to look to get your second in command trained up. 
Awesome. I'll make sure that all those links are in show notes so that people can click through and get those. Cameron, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our guests have learned a lot. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Bruce. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.